0: Get comfortable. Just joking. Our reading this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 20. In the year that the commander-in-chief, who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it, at that time the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist. Take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush. So shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot with buttocks uncovered. The nakedness of Egypt. Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and of Egypt their boast. And all the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, Behold, this is what has happened to those in whom we have hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? This is the word of the Lord. May he sanctify us by his word. His word is truth. Well, in chapter 19, you may remember that we saw a glorious picture of God saving the nations and numbering them among the true Israel of God. Why then does Isaiah seem to regress from chapter 19 to chapter 20 From this great promise to this oracle of judgment. There's been a couple of responses as to why this regress, so to speak, has occurred. Number one, perhaps the incredible nature of the prophecy in Isaiah 19 might have caused some of the Israelites to scoff. These nations are not only enemies, but they are strong enemies. And they'll never be saved by God. And it may have been caused a sense, it may have caused a sense of incredulity among God's people. Perhaps not much unlike us today when we consider some of our friends or family members or neighbors, and we think there is no way that God could ever save somebody like that. Well, perhaps Isaiah coming off of Isaiah 19 and chapter 20. And this glorious promise that God will not only bring these enemies into subjection, but will now, for the time being, will crush these enemies, chapter 20. And that God will perform the lesser feat of crushing these nations, chapter 20, in order to prove to Israel that he could do the greater feat of saving them, chapter 19. Well, the incredible nature of chapter 19 may have also been used to justify an Egyptian alliance against Assyria. After all, if God is going to save Egypt, then maybe we should join forces with them. If God is for Egypt, maybe we should be for Egypt. How often do we do this? Maybe justifying in our minds things that God would disapprove of, that in his word he has condemned and forbidden, but we use our theology to do it. Well, perhaps that is what Judah is doing, and why Isaiah is following 19 with 20, because in chapter 20, Isaiah reminds them that even though God is going to one day do a great work among the Egyptians, chapter 19, they are under the immediate judgment of God, and he will not tolerate any alliances. Ultimately, This text, these half a dozen verses are going to show us that they are not to be objects of trust for the people of God. These nations are not their hope. And you and I need to hear this message over and over again. Sometimes when we have the human power to achieve the ends that we think are best for us, That may not, in fact, be wisdom according to God's wisdom. It may be sin. It may be evidence of a lack of faith in God. And so our friends and our family members might tell us, well, why don't you just do this and then all of your problems will be solved? But herein lies the tension of being a people of faith. That yes, we may have, in the one hand, the power in our flesh to bring about our desired end according to at least what we understand to be our desired end. But God has said, you will not go down to Egypt for help. So do we trust in the things that we can see and can control and can manipulate? Or do we trust in those things that we can't see and that we can't control and that we can't manipulate? What we're going to see in Isaiah chapter 20 is that the common sense thing is not the best thing when the common sense thing runs contrary to God's word. This is really difficult for control freaks like me, and I know like many of you, to handle. Because those who like to be in control, and like to work out the end that they desire, have a very difficult time saying, it seems so obvious that Egypt is the way out here, but instead, I'm going to trust the Lord, even though it makes no sense to me. This is why all of us need God's grace. This is why all of us need God's word. And this is why Isaiah 20 is here. The big idea of this passage is essentially this, that sin promises life but leads to death. Trust God's word, not common sense. Sin promises life but leads to death. Trust God's word, not common sense. We're going to see just a basic outline. It's easy to see in your text, three points. In verses 1 and 2, we're going to see God sends a humiliated servant. He's going to humble Isaiah, his servant, and he's going to send him to preach a hard message. And that's what we see in verses 3 and 4. Not only is God going to send a humiliated servant, but God is going to deliver a hard message. He's going to deliver a hard message. Then finally, in verses 5 and 6, God will produce a humble response. He's going to send a humiliated servant. He's going to deliver a hard message and he's going to produce a humble response. Follow along with me beginning in verse one. We see here in the year that the commander in chief, that's second in charge in Assyria, was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod, fought against it and captured it. Ashdod is a city in Philistia. The Philistine city. And in the year 711 BC, the Philistines are routed by the Assyrians and the Assyrians capture the Philistine city called Ashdod. Now, Philistia is Judah's neighbor to the immediate west. And there's no doubt that Judah figured that if they had fallen this fate, that surely we could be the next victims in Assyria's campaign of terror. That surely, little Judah, knowing that they didn't have the military chops to handle the Assyrians, would also be tempted to say, oh, we need Egypt. And so, in the year that Ashdod fell, God commissions Isaiah to preach a hard message in a humiliating way. Look at this in verse 2. At that time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, go. I want you to go to these hard people, and I want you to preach a hard message. But look at this. I want you to do it in a humiliating way. Loose the sackcloth from your waist. Take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so walking naked and barefoot. By going naked and barefoot, he would be donning the costume of a man who had either been impoverished or disgraced. Or perhaps a prisoner of war, and those things go hand in hand. And notice that Isaiah doesn't have to do this for just a day or even a week, but according to verse 3, he's going to do it for three years. God is humiliating his servant for the good of his people. And so in verses 1 and 2, we see that God sends a humiliated servant and he commissions this humiliated servant in verses 3 through 5 to deliver a hard message. Look at verse 3. Then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, You see that there for three years as a sign that God had commissioned Isaiah to go and to preach naked and to wear the costume of an impoverished prisoner of war as a sign. What does a sign do? A sign is something that signifies something greater than itself. God tells Isaiah to preach naked and barefoot for three years as a sign of something to come. And we see exactly what that is in verse 4. Look at this. So shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. So we've got an explanation in verse 3 and verse 4. Now we see humiliation. God's message to Judah through Isaiah was, this is what I'm going to do to Egypt and Assyria, through Assyria. And it's worth stopping for just a moment and recognizing, as I'm sure it's clear in the text, that God's prophets never had an enviable position. Just think for a moment, what did God have his prophets do? God told Jeremiah, on the one hand, to get a brand new waistband, sticking under a rock in a river until it's torn to shreds. And that was meant to be an object lesson for Israel. In Jeremiah 18, when Jeremiah, we see him go to a potter's house, and we see the same thing with a basket of figs in Jeremiah 24. This is also, you may remember, why Jeremiah was forbidden to marry, that in all of these ways, Jeremiah was to be a walking object lesson for Israel. You may also remember Hosea. God tells Hosea, I want you to be a living illustration. I want you to marry a prostitute and your heart is going to be broken over and over and over again because this is what my people have done to me. God told Ezekiel to take a brick and lay it on the ground, and then he told him to lay on one side of the brick for 30 days, and then he told him to lay on the other side of the brick for another 30 days. And then he tells Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 4 that he wants him to cook all of his food over human feces. Ezekiel understandably asks if he might, can I use a different material maybe? God says, sure. He relents. You don't have to use human poop to cook your food. You can use cow feces instead. Ezekiel chapter 4. In all of these examples, and with Isaiah here in Isaiah 20, what is God doing? It seems so odd to us to cause his servants to undergo such humiliation. What is God doing? The answer is he's using symbolism to teach his people. Think of how much more powerfully Isaiah's message would translate as he walked around naked and barefoot saying, this is what God said he will do to Egypt through Assyria. Don't trust in Egypt. Trust in the Lord. God is using Isaiah's humiliation as an object lesson to teach his people in the same way that we use them to teach our own children. He's coming down essentially to Judah's level in the way that a parent might talk to a toddler, that he's revealing himself and his will to them in a way that they can understand it. And so God is gracious to humiliate his servant Isaiah so that Judah would understand more clearly his character and his will. Friends, how much more gracious has God been in in the humiliation of the servant, his son, Jesus Christ. The prophet Isaiah was born in a royal stock as King Hezekiah's nephew, and he descended lower than sackcloth here in Isaiah 20 to the garb of a conquered slave. And yet this doesn't come close to the humiliation of the son of God. The Son of God stripped himself of all of the prerogatives of his divinity and all of the robes of his glory. And for what? That he might be the object of shame and ridicule. As Isaiah writes in one of his servant songs, Isaiah 53, that he would be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hid their faces and was despised, and we esteemed him not. One author rightly asserted, It would be a futile endeavor to transform a righteous angel into a worm to understand what it meant for the son to humble himself as he did. It wouldn't even come close. That while his death on a cross was the pinnacle of his humiliation, there were many others that he experienced before he was ever hung naked, cursed by God, and on display for the entire world to see. Why did God humiliate his son in this way? Well, first and foremost, we know from God's word that it's the only way that God can make atonement for the sins of all of those who would turn and trust in him. But also, God has spoken to us through his son in the same way that he spoke to us through the prophets. That in Christ, God is speaking to us in the way that a father speaks to a toddler so that we might better understand. Better understand what exactly? That we might better understand that through Jesus Christ, oh, we see the glory of God. Paul tells us in Romans 3 that Jesus' death on a cross revealed the righteousness of God. It was an object lesson on God's righteousness. Not only that, but in Christ, we have an object lesson for what true humanity looks like in perfect fellowship with God and in perfect obedience to his law, loving God and loving others every minute of every day of every week of every month of his life. Also in Christ, we are able to understand more clearly the gravity of our sin. How great must our sin be to demand such a great sacrifice as him? Finally, the cross of Christ is the ultimate object lesson on the love of God. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So here we see the object lesson. In the nakedness of God's servant, Isaiah, finding its fulfillment in the humiliating nakedness of the greater servant on the cross. Isaiah would be stripped naked to warn of judgment that's coming against God's enemies. But Jesus, he would be stripped naked to be judged in the place of his enemies. For every single man or woman who would repent and believe in him. That he would take on God's wrath upon himself that we deserve And that we, those who trust in him alone by faith alone, would get all of his righteousness and right standing before God. And having been united to Christ by faith, all of the benefits of salvation won by Christ through the humiliation of his incarnation are ours. That he becomes our sanctification, our righteousness, and our glorification. All of those are found in Christ because God humbled him for us. The true and better prophet, the final prophet, humiliated by God as an object lesson of his love for sinners. Oh, friend, if you're tuning in, I pray that you would hear that and know that though you have great sin, more sin than you could ever count, and sin greater than you could ever know because you cannot know your sin as God knows your sin. That you would also know that God has provided a way for you to flee the wrath to come by no longer trusting in yourself, by no longer trusting in what you can see, but by putting all of your trust and hope, by placing all of your life in the hands of Christ and of his finished work on a cross and his resurrection from the dead. Trust in Christ. So God has humiliated his servant, and he has sent him in verses 3 and 4 to preach a hard message. But what is that hard message ultimately doing? Well, we're going to see that it produces in verses 5 and 6 a humble response. Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and Egypt their boast. They were obviously, they were led to trust in both Cush and in Egypt, but we saw in verse four that Egypt Egypt, and Cush are both going to be taken away as captives and exiles. So Judah, who's hoping in Egypt and hoping in, in Cush, are going to be ashamed and dismayed because of what's happened. That they in verse 5 isn't talking about Cush in Egypt. It's talking about those who want to go to Cush in Egypt for help. How do they respond? They respond by being dismayed and ashamed. And that word dismayed that you see there in verse 5, it can also be translated shattered. God is going to shatter them. Why? Because of Cush their hope and Egypt their boast. That word for boast there in verse 5 is simply the word for glory. What we boast in is our glory. It's the thing that we exalt over and above everything else. It is the object of our hope and of our security and of our identity. Well, God here shatters their false hopes and he demolishes their empty glory in such a way that they are utterly humiliated by being duped into believing such lies such that they are brought to the end of themselves and are left only with the question at the end of verse 6, how shall we escape? That the God who wiped through the Egyptians and the Assyrians like they were nothing, where will we go to find refuge from this God who we have failed to trust in? Answer, if you refuse God, There is no escaping God. That if you neglect so great a salvation promised in His Word, you will not escape the wrath to come. This is the point of the author of Hebrews, that he uses this exact phrase that we find at the end of verse six How shall we escape in Hebrews chapter two? He says, Therefore, We must pay closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. Closer attention to what? To the subject matter of chapter one that preceded it. To the great saving works and promises revealed by God in his word and in his son, Jesus Christ. But why do we need to pay closer attention? Why do we need to be wary of drifting away from God's word as Israel did? As Judah is tempted to do. Well, he answers that in the very next verse. He says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape? Sound familiar? I often wonder if maybe the author of Hebrews has Isaiah 20 in mind when he writes this. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If disregard for the law proclaimed by Moses brought such great judgment against Israel, how much more disastrous would it be to neglect the gospel proclaimed by Jesus Christ, of whom all of the law and all of the prophets are pointing? That if we neglect the word of Christ, how shall we escape? The answer is that everything in your life that you hope in and boast in that is not Christ, everything in which you find your identity and your security will be swept away in the day of Christ. Even those good things that you have turned into ultimate things. How will you escape from God in that day? The answer is you won't. You will not escape the wrath of God, unless you flee to the Son of God. Our only shelter from God is God. When God saves us in Christ, God saves us from himself. Judah's biggest problem in their unbelief was not Assyria. Judah's biggest problem in their unbelief was God. And he sent Isaiah to preach a hard message in a unique way to bring them to the end of themselves so that God alone would be their refuge. About five or six years after Ashdod fell, Sargon, which we see in verse one, is killed and a new king named Sennacherib is charging through Judah toward Jerusalem. It's just as Isaiah predicted in Isaiah chapter 8, the floodwaters of Assyria are rising all the way up to the neck of Judah, threatening to drown them. Well, now Assyria is right on the edge of Jerusalem, and they're sending out taunts. How is it that Judah will respond? God has given them a hard message from a prophet who delivered it in a humiliating way. How will they respond? Let's take a look. Turn to your left to 2 Kings 18. 2 Kings chapter 18. First five books of the Bible Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. If you find yourself there, keep going to your right. You'll run into arguably Lyle Lovett's greatest album, Joshua Judges' Ruth. Keep going to your right. You'll find 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and then you'll find 2 Kings. We're going to be in chapter 18. Beginning in verse 17, we're just going to move quickly through it. The king of Assyria sent the Tartan. That word Tartan is the same word used for commander in Isaiah 20. He's the one who is second in command to the king. And he represents the king. And just scan along with me in verse 19, this Assyrian spokesperson on behalf of the Tartan begins to taunt Israel and he says to Hezekiah in verse 20, we're coming whether you like it or not and you can't talk your way out of it. Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? Not only that, but in verse 21, he tells them you can't trust Egypt either. says, consider how that worked out for the Philistines. Don't you remember what happened in Ashdod? To lean on them is like leaning on the tip of a spear. You are only going to make it worse. And then in verses 23 to 25, his taunts are going to go from the political to the theological. He says in verse 22, if you say, well, we trust in Jehovah. Well, I'm sorry to inform you. Verse 25, Jehovah is the one that sent us here. He's saying, sorry, your God turned heel. He has switched to our side. He's not with you anymore. In fact, so blasphemous were these taunts that Eliakim, the priest in verse 26, begs them to speak in Aramaic instead of Hebrew so that the common Hebrew soldiers couldn't hear them make such taunts. And then you see in verse 27 that Rob Shaka shows no regard for this request. He says that my message isn't just for you who speak Aramaic. My message isn't just for the priest and it's not just for the king. My message is for everyone here who are doomed with you You see this here in verse 26? Who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and to drink their own urine. Whoa. He's telling everyone, this is what awaits you if you trust in Hezekiah. This is what awaits you if you trust in Egypt. This is what awaits you if you trust in Jehovah. Your only way out. The common sense move here is to trust in us, trust in Assyria. And then he's going to keep on going in verses 28 to 35, and he's going to give four denunciations, four denunciations of Hezekiah. He's going to let everyone know that hoping at Hezekiah and Jehovah is futile. And the denunciations are once again going to take aim not only at the political, but also at the theological. He's going to say to the people in verse 29 that Hezekiah cannot protect you. And then he's going to say in verse 30, if you scan that, Hezekiah will not prophesy to you. Well, these second set of denunciations simply expound on these first two denunciations that you cannot trust in Hezekiah's word to you and you cannot trust in Jehovah's word to you. He says in verses 31 and 32, not only will Hezekiah not be able to protect you, but if you follow him, you're going to be left eating your own feces. Remember that in verse 27? Oh, but he says, if you follow us, you'll be eating figs. What would you rather eat? Feces or figs? It's an easy decision. Then in verses 32 and 35, he finishes his denunciation of Hezekiah by telling the people, don't believe him when he says the Lord will save you. He says, look at how the gods of all these other empires have fared, and they were all bigger than you, and they were all stronger than you, and if their gods couldn't save them, what hope do you have that your little god will save you? Of course, at the time in the ancient Near East, they saw everybody as having a territorial god. And so warfare, one empire and the other, was essentially war from one god against the other. Assyria had been conquering one empire after another and thus one God after another. And they said, listen here, little Judah. You think your little God can save you? The evidence is not in your favor. Brothers and sisters, is this not the way sin and Satan always works? That he leads us to question the goodness of God's character the truthfulness of his word and his power to save. He says, you can have feces with God or you can have figs with me and you think, figs sound pretty good. I'd rather have figs than feces. I would rather have pleasure and comfort in sin than pain with God. Sin and Satan says, why would you trust the promises of him who you cannot see when I'm offering you the practical and the tangible path to happiness and security now. This is an easy decision. Why are you waiting? This is common sense. Can't you see? Sin almost always seems like the common sense way to get what we want in the moment. It makes great promises For happiness and life, and it always leads to pain and death. Well, here we find Hezekiah hemmed in from every side. Ashdod has fallen, Cush is a false hope, and Egypt is an empty boast. They're completely outmanned and outgunned by Assyria, and the question is how will we escape? He has two choices. He can make the common sense move by rejecting God and giving himself to temptation. Or he can walk by faith by rejecting sin and temptation and he can trust God. There are There is no third way. What will he do? Will he, in the words of the author of Hebrews, neglect such a great salvation? Or will he hold fast to the word of God. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Hezekiah picks up the sackcloth that God told Isaiah to take off. Sackcloth is meant throughout the Bible to show mourning repentance. God tells Isaiah to take it off because he is to deliver a message not of repentance, but of judgment. And in the face of this message of judgment, now we see Hezekiah taking off the very sackcloth that Isaiah years earlier had taken off, and he puts it on in repentance. That in the face of overwhelming temptation, when it seems like trusting God is only going to lead to more disaster and more pain and more hurt, he didn't go to the king of Assyria. Where did he go? He went to the house of the Lord. And the word of the Lord comes to Hezekiah through who else? Look at verse six, through Isaiah. And look at what Isaiah says in verse six. Or what God says through Isaiah, Isaiah rather, in verse 6, do not be afraid. I will save you. Will Hezekiah believe those words? It's staggering to notice that in verses 8 through 13, the salvation that is promised by God through Isaiah in verse 6 doesn't come immediately. Sennacherib continues to defy Jehovah. He continues to breathe threats against Jerusalem. He continues to, to seek the very life of Hezekiah. And this goes on for some time. Is God lying? Was his word false? But we see Hezekiah will still, even then, not give in to the temptation to bite and to pursue the figs of Assyria, but he will sit and persevere with the Lord. And that's what we see in verses 14 through, through 19. That even though his salvation doesn't come immediately, even though temptation is ever before him, even though it is not lifted immediately, Hezekiah has to wait and the taunting and the temptations continue to come on heavy. All of this was so that Hezekiah in verses 14 and following would persevere in prayer. It's all that he has left. He's no more wisdom, he's got no more strength, he's got no more political recourse. Egypt is a dead end, Assyria is breathing down his neck. He only has one hope and that is God. How will we escape? You've got two choices. You can trust Assyria who you can see, it'll be immediate, it'll be quick. It'll be over, or you can wait and trust God, though it may be harder and more painful and more difficult. What will you do? Hezekiah, in this season of of pain and of waiting, we see in verse 19, just presses into God all the more. So now he prays. O Lord our God, save us, please, from His hand. That all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. God has used all of this to bring Hezekiah to the point of not caring about his own protection, not caring about his own promotion. He doesn't care about any of that anymore. He has given up everything and he has been brought to the point of the only thing that I want is for you to glorify yourself and the salvation of your people according to your promises. That's all I care about at this point. I don't care about the throne. I don't care about my own safety. I want you to be glorified. And that is the goal of God's discipline is to bring us there. We see in the verses that follow, Isaiah shows up again and he says in verse 20 that God has heard your prayer. Later on at the end of the chapter, we see that that night the angel of the Lord struck down 185,000 Assyrians and left the rest to run home with their tails between their legs. The common sense move was to get this over as quickly as possible, to run from pain as quickly as possible, to take the easy way out in the common sense move, trust in Assyria. It's better to eat figs with Assyria than feces with God. And Hezekiah trusts the word of the Lord. He presses into God, even when salvation doesn't come, even when pain is prolonged, even when that temptation doesn't immediately lift, even when it's heavy before him, it just forces him to press in even more to God in prayer and on reliance on his word. Brothers and sisters, I know that there are some of you for whom temptation is so heavy right now and sin is ever before you and it just feels like oh it would just be so much easier to give in it would all be over no more pain no more waiting no more struggling just give in i saw this this week on my facebook feed brother who's now walking in a man who's now walking in a homosexual lifestyle said that he struggled for years and years and years and years and years with this. And he was in the church, and the church was legalistic, and this, that, and the other. He says, finally, he's been able to be authentic and true to himself, to give himself over to his desires, which he now understands to be good and true, God-given desires. And the reality is, is that it was better to eat the figs of sin even if I have to redefine God's word, than it was to struggle with God. That's dangerous territory. Brothers and sisters, do not eat the figs. It will only bring death. Wait on the Lord. Press into the Lord. Trust the Lord. Let's help one another do this to remind ourselves often of the promises of God and of the deceptiveness and the destructiveness of sin. Oh, it looks so good in the moment, but it will only lead to death. But if we wait and we trust the Lord, even though he may lead us through a season of pain, he will save us. Would you neglect so great a salvation to eat those figs? The word of Christ is better. Trust Jesus. Well, what we see in Second Kings 18 and 19 is how God's threats in Isaiah 20 are meant to work for God's elect. God's threats are one of many ways that God accomplishes his purposes in our lives. And What is their purpose? Well, as you see here, it's to turn his elect in repentance and in trust toward him that those who love God and have a tender heart toward God take God's threats seriously. And they take the deceptive and the destructive nature of sin seriously. And when they see their sin for what it is, they turn to God in repentance and faith, and they persevere with him for as long as the enemy taunts and as long as the temptation remains, because they take the gospel seriously. They take the word of God seriously and they take holiness by grace seriously and they take standing before Christ one day seriously. Brothers and sisters, Isaiah 20 was not just given for Judah, it was given for us. God is good to knock out from under us all of our false hopes and he is good to shatter all of our empty boasting and glories so that we would be left with nothing but to say, how will we escape? You may remember this is what Jesus did with Peter. That Jesus, after a long day of ministry... Disciples are exhausted. They haven't had a chance to eat. He tells them to go out onto this lake. A storm comes. They're struggling against the waves. Jesus walks out onto the water, seeing that they were struggling. Peter gets onto the water, and he begins to sink. And most of us, when we look at that, we go, no, Peter, don't take your eyes off of Jesus, as if that was the problem. But what we see in Matthew's account is that as soon as Peter stepped foot on the water. It says that he saw the waves and he began to sink. Nobody begins to sink. When you and I jump into the deep end, we plunge. But here's Peter slowly beginning to sink. How is that possible? Who is sinking? Peter. Jesus is sinking Peter. Why? so that Peter would say three words, Lord, save me. The very next verse says, and immediately Jesus took him by the arm and brought him into the boat. Friends, there are times in our lives where God has to sink us in order to save us. And when those times of sinking come, You will be tempted by Satan who is no respecter of persons but love weak flailing sheep. You will be tempted with all kinds of figs, quick fixes, common sense solutions, things that seem right in man's eyes. Friends, when those days come, cry to Jesus. Lord, save me. Make that your only prayer. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that now on behalf of many of my brothers and sisters who are being sunk by circumstances around this virus, by consequences of their own sin in marriage or with other relationships, who feel hopeless and flailing, And yet the warnings that you give here in Isaiah 20 are warnings for us. What we see in 2 Kings 18 and 19 is for us, and that is not to trust in our common sense, not to trust in what seems right and what we can see, that all that glitters is not gold, and that even though sin and temptation, oh, it seems so good, In the moment, it only leads to death. I pray that you would help each one of my brothers and sisters to stop like Hezekiah, to press into you, to reach out like Peter. Lord, save us, please. Not for my glory, but for your glory. Father, would you bring each one of us through whatever means are necessary to love your glory more than anything else in our life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Brothers and sisters, for the sake of time and kiddos in your home, we are not going to have a closing song. But just as a reminder, we will be gathering tonight at five o'clock to pray together. These things would be good things for us to pray for. We pray for one another and seek even in these days to help one another follow Jesus. So we'll see many of you, I hope, in. Zoom at five o'clock. Until then, I pray the Lord keeps you and blesses you and that he would cause his face to shine upon you in Christ and to give you peace. Have a good Lord's Day.